Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. For me, you got to realize growing up is pretty strange. I remember shoveling driveways and people would say, you know, your grandfather used to own this house. You know, it's kind of funny to live in that shadow of, you know, at one point they had all this affluence. And, you know, now I'm out there uh, shoveling driveways for $2. I saw the ups and downs of what was happening in the business world. And I was cutting grass and painting houses and stuff for these two dentists in the neighborhood. And I saw they had this great lifestyle, you know, they didn't seem to struggle with the economy and they were always off on ski trips and stuff. So the dentist seemed like the perfect lifestyle for me. So I remember telling my partner that I just want enough money to pay for dental school, maybe 10,000, maybe 50,000, something like that. It would be all I could ever need. And I remember him saying, Larry, don't you want boats and all this stuff? And I'm there, you know, I'm gonna be a dentist. So, you know, I'm not gonna need all that. Some people thought that was crazy. I'm Steve Seidel. This is Wolves Among Us, Episode 2, The Elephant on Your Back. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. Cocaine became like the in-drug, and it fueled like kind of like everything. This was, of course, the beauty of Larry's business. His cocaine was personalized to a dealer. I'm looking at the guys with the guns, and they're now perspirating. And I'm thinking, you know, there's going to come a breaking point here. I've got to make a move. In episode one, We told you a little bit about Larry Levin's background. His family struggled and he made his way to Exeter on scholarship, only to get kicked out, and then somehow talked his way into the University of Pennsylvania. In college, Larry quickly realized how much cash he could make dealing pot. His plan was to earn enough money to put himself through dental school and then switch gears to a more normal life. Simple enough. But when you take a closer look at Larry's background, you start to realize that the decisions he faced were a little more complicated than that. We're gonna return to where we left off in episode one, but first I wanna take you back to Haverhill, Mass, the shoe manufacturing town north of Boston where Larry was born and raised. In the first half of the 20th century, the Lavins had made a name for themselves in the Haverhill area as a wealthy, well-respected family. You know, my father's an interesting character. His parents were extremely wealthy. I mean, they owned half the town I grew up in. You know, I'm talking to you from Tampa, Florida. 
his family would come down here for three months a year and he would go to St. Pete High School and bring his ponies with him. So we're talking that type of money. My father went to MIT and uh, like so many people his age went off the war. He was a pilot in World War II. He was shot down twice. He was shot down in the Battle of Midway. He laid in the water for two days in a raft with both shoulders and both hips dislocated. It took him three weeks to get him back together like that. You know what I mean? He was in a class of 100 pilots on their way to Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. At the end of the war, there were seven of these guys left out of that class of 100. Larry's father returned a decorated war hero with a degree from MIT. He was a celebrated member of the Haverhill community where he intended to make his living and raise a family. Haverhill had been known for shoe manufacturing for centuries, literally. One New York Times article states that, quote, shoe manufacturing started here, at least on a primitive basis, in 1646, just six years after the place was settled. It was the lifeblood of the community. So when it was time for Larry's father to start his own business, he did what many others in Haverhill did before him. He got involved in the local manufacturing business, making heels for shoes. Havel was famous for being the shoemaker of the country, like, say, World War II time. When he comes back, his other friends stayed in these corporate businesses that gave him a good living. My dad actually had a heel company, a four-story building, one of five heel companies in the country. Let's talk about what happened in Havel. As we all know, most of the factories went out of business for the simple reason that importation of shoes. Our government spent a lot of money training people's Taiwan, money in Italy, money everywhere to make shoes. And by doing that, we've lost a lot of shops and we lost a lot of members. And all five closed in one year due to imports from Italy were much cheaper than what they could make. So all those factories became abandoned. Haverhill's 300-year-old tradition of shoemaking suddenly collapsed leaving behind thousands of laborers and business owners, including Larry's father. All of the time and effort he put into that business amounted to nothing. So times were tough when it comes to income from him. So he did a lot of side jobs. I know at night he would go do tax returns for like the IRS. They would hire people that were good at math and uh, he would do that. I think he had come from so far and, and dropped down, but was still somewhat trying to live that upper middle class type thing, you know? You know how social standing is? I can remember my parents, like, you know, a lot of parents before I did this, they would buy like the high-end liquor, but then they would fill it with cheaper liquor. So when they have these people over, they don't know that, you know? And uh, I'm not mad, you're just embarrassed. You know, you do things like go to school, it's a Catholic grammar school, and they'd ask you to stand in the morning. There'd be a list they'd read out. That was the list of people who hadn't paid their tuition yet. That starts playing with your mind, or you go to the community pool and they stop you at the gate. Or you go to the grocery store and then they would harp on you, hey, you know, your parents haven't paid the bill, can you say something to them? And, you know, you're a little kid, you know, and they're, they're saying these things to you. Yeah, you know, it's embarrassing when your friends, especially my best friend, Ricky, his father was very affluent, he was a doctor. They often took me to country clubs and whatnot, so I saw that other side of that type of thing. Larry's childhood was different from the kids around him. So he did what he had to do, make money. Larry started working any job he could find and never looked back. I had paper routes, I shoveled driveways, I had all these jobs from the time I'm 10. By the time I'm 
15, I never took another cent from my parents. I mean, I paid for everything I ever did. And I needed braces, but that, it just didn't happen. So I ended up paying for my braces myself. So early on, I decided I want something that was going to be stable and not have that type of problem. I didn't want my kids to grow up with that type of embarrassment. And to be clear, Larry didn't grow up in abject poverty. He grew up surrounded by affluence, both in his community and in his family's past. This is what made his family's financial problems stand out. There were weeks that went by when there was no money. There were fights about money in the house all the time, and that became a very central issue to Larry's life. This is New York Times bestselling author Carol Celine. In 1987, Carol wrote a book about Larry Levin called Dr. Snow. She's also written at least one feature on Larry for the Philadelphia Magazine. She spent countless hours with Larry back in the 80s and gained an intimate understanding of his childhood. When he would go into the lunchroom while his friends would buy a hot lunch, he had his lunch in a paper bag. Local stores in the neighborhood would send notes home with him that his parents owed them money. So money became very early in Larry's life a major issue. But it wasn't only the practical need for money that drove Larry or the feeling of embarrassment that he faced as a kid. There was more to it than that. For Larry, and this is very critical to understand Larry Lavin, Larry was as interested in the thrill and the excitement as he was in the money. He liked to push himself to the edge all the time. When he was a kid, he would climb trees, that the highest trees, with the risk of falling over and killing himself, just so he could have the excitement of having done it. And as Larry grew into his formative teen years, his desire for risk and money collided. He teamed up with his best friend and they started dabbling in theft. So he and Larry started out by stealing stereos from the houses in the community. And they got away with it. They sold the stuff to a fence and they made a little bit of money so Larry wasn't feeling so poor all the time. The biggest thing they pulled off was their robbery of the snowmobile. So they went to a ski mobile dealership. Larry had a wire cutter. They cut open the gate to the dealership, drove the truck to a ski mobile. They get the thing into the truck. They drive it out. They park it in this garage and they go home. The next day, they take it to the guy that wants to buy it, and he says he's not going to buy it until he can try it out. So they go to <laughs> they go to a local hill to try out the snowmobile, and darn if the guy they stole it from isn't up there with his snowmobile. He recognizes it and calls the cops. So of course they're arrested. Larry's father knows the judge, and he gets off scot-free. This is very critical to Larry's believing all through his life that he can get away with things. But this was truly the beginning of Larry's leading a dual life. The continued lack of any real consequences seemed to fuel Larry's propensity for risk-taking. The same was true when he was expelled from Exeter, only to be accepted into Penn despite not having a high school diploma. But Larry's good fortune didn't impress his father who issued a stern warning before his son left for college. Larry's father was very rigid and very cold. They did not have a close relationship. So his father was furious with him, as you can well imagine. 
Larry, you already have two strikes against you. So three strikes and you're out. And I just kind of looked at him and went out the door and slammed the door. Didn't even respond to it. You know, it's like, who are these guys who I felt like had kind of skipped out on their moral obligation to raise kids correctly? And I'm just like, I could care fuck less. You know, I'm on my own and I'm out of here, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm not taking your money to go to school. I'm putting myself through school. With that last declaration, Larry had established complete independence from his family, his home, and his past. But his experiences in Haverhill had made their mark. Larry was a young, bright kid with three potentially combustible qualities. He was driven to make money. He loved taking risks. And he answered to no one, especially authority figures. He was drawn to a life of excitement and rule-breaking. And at the same time, Larry wanted to live the normal, stable life that he never got as a kid. So, one might wonder, why can't you have both? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. By his freshman year in college, Larry had cut financial ties with his parents. He was on his own. Tuition was covered by loans and scholarship, so he didn't have to worry too much about that. But Larry had other recreational costs. He liked to smoke pot. It was fun, it made him popular, it gave him a group of friends. So he needed money to finance his little pot habit. So kids learned that if they bought a pound They could keep an ounce for themselves and then sell the rest off for more than they paid. And that's how he started in the pot business, basically to cover his own little bit of pot. And eventually he found that there was a market and he could make money by selling more. So he started to branch out. He was able to develop this pot business to where it was extremely profitable. He had a whole room where he stored it. It stunk a pot when you walked into the apartment. And he made contacts in Florida. And eventually he had people who would go down and bring it up to him. Look, he's a great salesman. He could sell dirt to a dead man. And that's what got him through college. He sold pot. And by the time he was a senior, he was running a large pot business. Throughout his undergrad years, Larry recruited fellow students to help him deal to other college students. He expanded to other colleges in the Northeast and then started dealing to the general public with the help of people like Billy Motto. And one of the most remarkable things is that he did this all while sailing through an Ivy League course load and getting accepted to an Ivy League dental school. 
But the good old days of trafficking pot were coming to an end. The 70s saw a huge coordinated crackdown on drugs, and it all started with a White House press conference back in 1971. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Richard Nixon had announced a huge federal funding package, which led to the formation of the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA. He called his initiative the War on Drugs. Well, throughout the 70s, Larry's guys were having some run-ins with the DEA. Pot was bulky and pungent and was just too easy to detect. Larry was spending money on lawyers and additional product to make up for the stuff that had been confiscated. And this was the money that he was supposed to use for dental school one day. What to do? Try to make up the losses selling more pot? Or pocket the remaining money and commit to dental school? As Larry questioned his future, fate intervened and delivered him an answer. He was out shopping one day and ran into an old friend who had an irresistible turn of phrase. Why carry an elephant on your back when you put a mouse in your pocket? It's a very profound statement. You know, if you're trying to smuggle something, cocaine's such a smaller quantity and it's so much easier to hide and transport. And he's got the connection for it. In episode one, Larry confessed that he'd always had trouble balancing risk and reward. This might have been an example of that because with cocaine, all he saw was reward. He saw a sleek, high-class party drug, the drug of the future. Hippies, pot, Nixon, that was all in the past. So when I first get to Philly, I think I'm kind of like a hippie. I've got long hair past my shoulders. I've got, you know, weird bell bottoms and fried boots. And as things progress, all of a sudden you care more about, you know, driving a BMW and different clothes. There was music and after-hours clubs where everyone would get together and party and, you know, do coke. And right about now, the casinos open in Atlantic City. This whole yuppie atmosphere had come about. And all the people I knew, the professionals and whatnot, or wannabe professionals, pot smoking was like passe. Cocaine became like the in-drug, and it fueled like kind of like everything. Why is cocaine so popular? I think for a number of reasons. Some of them, I think, relate to the image that is portrayed by some of the so-called jet-setters, the movie stars, the professional athletes. So I realized that this was where the market was moving to. Larry believed that the market for cocaine was much broader than just the rich and the famous. He wanted to bring it to the masses. And in order to do that, he would need to rely on his trusted inner city dealers, like one Billy South Philly motto. But Billy didn't quite see Larry's vision at first. My thing was pot, it wasn't coke. And I joined up Larry with the cocaine only to get the pot connection, which was down Florida. This is Billy Motto, AKA Billy South Philly. I said, I need more pot. He says, I ain't got no pot. He says, uh, why you want to put a, an outfit on your back when you could put a mouse in your pocket? I said, what the fuck's that mean? And he brings out the Coke. And I said to him, Larry, you know, this ain't my thing, really. You know, nobody was doing Coke at this point. It was a rich man's high, it was cool. Turns out Billy would have no problem selling the Coke that Larry provided. The rewards for dealing Coke versus pot were obvious. But unlike Larry, Billy was concerned with the risks. 
Every time Billy ever left my house, he said, Larry, someday we're going to jail for this. I said, cut it out, Billy. That's not happening. He says, well, tell me it's going to be all right. So it was a ritual we had. I had to say it's going to be all right before he'd leave my apartment. Larry ran the coke business just like his pot business. He would front people the cocaine and get the money on the back end. Here's how it worked. Larry was a supplier. He would give a large quantity of cocaine to a dealer who would then sell it and then return with the money to Larry and keep a percentage. It was a very unusual business model for drug dealing in that it relied heavily on trust. Larry didn't make his customers buy anything up front, including the cocaine. He's basically profit sharing. There's a lot of people that want to sell or buy, but a lot of them don't have the finances. So I'm going to front it to you. So I'm going to give this thing to you for no cash. And you're going to go and sell it to whoever, you know, and you're going to raise the money and come back to me. Every time I've got enough money, we'll go buy some more and we'll repeat that whole thing. Each time, hopefully it will get larger amounts. But, you know, I had to keep some pretty good book work because you're fronting this to a lot of different people. You know, if they don't pay, they don't come back. You just get rid of those people. You know, you don't worry about like you see in the movies, this crazy people chasing people with guns. That's, it doesn't make any sense. Larry took huge risks by entrusting his product with drug dealers. I mean, it's not like he could sue them if they didn't hold their end of the bargain. But surprisingly, the gamble paid off. It was never worth ever trying to go and strong arm or hurt somebody because if you didn't want to do business, you'd be a fool. Here you've got someone that's constantly going to give you something. You don't have to put up your own money. And if you didn't come back, I didn't really care. I just cut you loose and moved on to someone that did want to make money. Larry had officially pivoted from the pot industry and set himself up as the leader of a cocaine enterprise. And as that enterprise grew, Larry needed a partner. He joined up with a fellow dental student from the University of Pennsylvania named David Ackerman. David Ackerman was a good-looking, very well-bred kid from a Jewish family in New York City. He had led a very cultured life. His father was a dentist, and he had wanted to go into practice with him, which is why he was at dental school with Larry. And his mother was kind of a socialite with gorgeous jewelry, who always took her son to concerts and, and to museums and gave him the better things in life. So he was much more sophisticated than Larry. Totally different worlds. David in dental school, was not a drug user. David was in a dorm with a close friend of Larry's who was one of his drug associates. And one day, Larry was now full into selling cocaine, and Larry's friend called David, and he said, what are you doing? And David said, nothing, I'm studying. And he said, look, would you do me a favor? Go over to the drugstore and get me a bottle of something called inositol. Inositol is a white powder that drug dealers use to thin the cocaine so that when they sell it, they're not selling pure cocaine. So David goes to the drugstore. He buys the inositol and he brings it to the apartment where they're doing the break. And as a little reward, they throw him some coke. He tries it and he's gone. Never felt anything like that in his life. He is off the walls, happy, joyous. He loves it, loves it, loves it. He's in. Nobody really knows if David joined because of the money or the coke, 
But in any event, he and Larry became partners. David trusted Larry's business acumen, but wasn't quite as laid back and as forgiving as him. While Larry just cut people out of his business who crossed him, David couldn't resist the temptation to track down a customer who never returned with his money. David and an associate went to a club where the missing customer used to spend time, but he wasn't there. So they approached the bartender, a guy named Willie Harcourt. These two guys came in the bar. They came in around seven o'clock and I was still setting up because the club didn't really get going until later. And so they came in and they sat down. You know, they ordered a couple of shots of vodka. And as I'm pouring the vodka, one of these guys says, you know, you owe us $10,000. And I took a step back. I said, what are you talking about? They said, well, your friend Barry, Barry was one of the local guys in the club, king of quaaludes. He was always knocked out on quaaludes. They said, well, your friend Barry, you know, uh, took $10,000 worth of cocaine. And he said, you sent it all back to L.A. So where's the fucking money? You know, and these guys weren't tough guys. They were college students, University of Pennsylvania, you know, and dressed the part, button down shirt and dockers and slacks. You know, so I was in no fear for my life, maybe my reputation, but not my life. So, you know, I said to him, are you guys telling me you actually fronted that idiot $10,000 worth of cocaine? You deserve to lose it. I said, number one. And number two, I said, I have nothing to do with it. But I am interested. If you want to tell me a little bit more about what's going on, eh, maybe I'll assume his debt. We'll see. So that got them kind of thinking. And, you know, the first thing they said was, well, if you want to be a runner, we, we really need someone to go down to Miami and buy for Larry. And that just appealed to me in, in the greatest way because I was sort of a junkie for danger. So I was looking for the most dangerous, absurd things that I could do. And so running cocaine out of Miami seemed just the perfect resume addition for this 24-year-old. David didn't track down any missing coke or money, but he might have found something even more valuable, a reliable runner. But first, Willie would have to meet the boss. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. The first time I met Larry, you know, I wasn't prepared at all. We went out to West Philadelphia, understood that West Philadelphia is not a place you want to be, but it's got the University of Pennsylvania there. So I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that I was going to meet the boss. And that put me on edge a little bit. 
That's Willie Harcourt, the bartender who David Ackerman confronted about the missing money. Willie had nothing to do with that, but he was interested in helping in another way. And we walk in and here's Larry, just like a floppy haired wizard. He's sitting on a desk. You know, he's got stacks of cash. His hair's all a mess. And he's like, oh, okay, you must be Willie. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. There was definitely an aura about the guy. You just immediately liked him, first of all. He had an infectious smile, a twinkle in his eye, and uh, he talked nonstop. I mean, if you've talked to Larry at all, you know that you can give him a question, and then two hours later, you're ordering a pizza, he hasn't stopped talking. So, you know, he was there, and there's all his stacks of money there, and he was like, okay, yeah, okay, you're Willie, that's great, here's what you're going to do. And he took out a little duffel bag, and stuck about $160,000 in it and said, you're going to go down to the airport and you're going to meet a guy named Miguel. He's driving a gray Cadillac. So we stick the money in the bag and then off I go in a cab to the airport. And uh, (laughs) it's my very first run and I'm sweating. You know, I'm nervous, but confident that things will go well because, of course, this is my destiny. So... I put the bag on the x-ray thing and I walk real fast so the bag goes through and it gets stuck in the middle of the fucking x-ray machine. And the cop reaches over and pulls it back and says, sir, we have a problem with your bag. At that point, I thought I'm either going to run like hell or just test fate. You know, let's just see. So I went back to the cop and he said, yeah, you know, the tennis racket won't work. It's too big. So we took out the tennis racket. The bag went through. And I got on a plane, and that was my first run. And for the next year, I was running down to Miami with anywhere from 100,000 to 300, 400,000 as the business grew, and working the streets because there was no steady connection. With Willie on board, Larry's business was almost complete. He finally had someone he could trust with large sums of money who could run down to Florida and then back up to Philly with kilos of coke. But there was just one final missing piece, a reliable source. Willie was trying to make connections with Colombian cocaine smugglers in Miami, but the scene down there was a little dicey. No city in this country has ever experienced the kind of drug war Miami is experiencing now. The Miami morgue is a busy place. And authorities say that's because the Colombian drug dealers who now operate in Miami come from places in Colombia where there is no law and murder is just a way of doing business. It was very violent back then. You know, I was like, well, okay, I'll have to watch my step a little bit. But, you know, during that first year, everybody I bought from, somebody had a pistol in the room, somebody had a, a machine gun in the room. Everybody thought they were a tough guy. But it was the Colombians who were uh, running raids and killing people that were really uh, doing the damage back then. They flip a coin to see if they're going to kill you. For the last two years, there's been a war in South Florida. Colombians killing other Colombians or anybody else who gets in their way. So far, more than 100 people have been murdered and no one has gone to jail. I was taking my life in my hands three, four times a month flying down there. And I used to meet Miguel at the Dadeland Mall outside Miami. And uh, one day I was there and I had a half a million dollars, which was the most I'd done at that time, in a bag. And we met at the Dadeland Mall and had lunch. And then we were walking out of the Dadeland Mall and we're walking to Miguel's car. And all of a sudden a van pulls up in front of us 
The side door swings open, and about six guys with machine guns come tumbling out. And I thought, all right, you fucker, you, you pushed your luck, and now you're going to have to pay up. But fortunately, they immediately ran away from us toward two other cars that were distant away and started just opened up and started blasting this car. And I'm standing maybe 20, 30 feet from there with this money in my bag, and I'm like, you know what? I got to find a better way of doing this. My time is going to come. For almost a year, Willie had been bobbing and weaving through Miami's incredibly violent drug scene, meeting with various suppliers in motel rooms and nightclubs throughout the city. And frankly, he'd had enough. He wanted his contact, Miguel, to introduce him to someone who had quality, pure, uncut cocaine, without having to wonder if his next deal would be his last. So we get to Miami Beach, it's about 8.30 at night, and we had to go into this upstairs motel, and Miguel knocks on the door, and the door opens, and he says, Willie, you go ahead and go in. So I walk in, and we walk into the small motel room past the bathroom door, and once I get past the bathroom door, the bathroom door opens, and a guy with an Uzi comes out and steps up behind me. And then I get into the room, and there's another guy in the corner of the room with an Uzi. And uh, there's a table with a bunch of bags sitting on it. And this little skinny guy named uh, Pepe. And Pepe's doing the whole bit. He's got the 14-karat gold Carrera sunglasses on. He's got all the gold chains. He's wearing a gold Rolex. So I come in. I look at the guys with the guns. I put my bag on the bed. I look at Pepe. And I said, hey, man, uh, what's with the guns? I'm not here to rip you off. And he starts laughing. He goes, oh, you're not going to rip me off. Well, that's good to know. So he goes, what do you got in the bag? And I'm like, I got money in the bag. What do you got in those bags? He said, well, I got, I got your product here. I forget, Coca, that's what he called it. I got your Coca here. I said, all right, well, let's go at the same time. It's sort of like, you know, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. So anyway, I unzip my bag and open it up, and there's the $600,000, $700,000, whatever it was there. And his eyes got real big because he saw that I was the real deal. And so he said, okay, Willie, we got this for you. And he pulls out 10 kilos for me to choose from. And I was expecting to see what Miguel had presented, this beautiful, hard, crystalline rock, you know, the real deal. And instead, it's cut. The shit is cut and some of it's cut terribly. So as I start looking through these kilos, they were all cut except for one. One of them was good that I could take. And so I called Miguel over and I said, hey man, I said, this stuff is awful. It's not even cut well. I can't buy any of these kilos except for this one over here. And he's like, what? Oh, no, man, you can't do that. Do you have any idea what it took for them to get this together? You can't do that. And Pepe's like, was there a problem, Willie? I'm like, no, there's not a problem for me. I said, but the problem for you is that only one of these kilos is worth buying. I'm not going to buy the rest of this stuff. This isn't what I came for. And he's screaming and spitting and screaming at Miguel. And I spoke fairly good Spanish, you know, and he's I'm, you know, going on and on about, you motherfucker, Miguel, you made me do this, this and that. And as this goes on, I'm looking at the guys with the guns, and they're now perspirating. And I'm thinking, you know, there's going to come a breaking point here. I've got to make a move. So I pulled 56500 out of my bag, which is what I was paying at the time. And I go over and I set it on the table, and I grab the one good kilo, 
and I go back and I put it in my suitcase. And Pepe looks up at me, he says, what are you doing, man? And I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna take this one kilo and I'm gonna give you another chance. I'm down here every week looking for anywhere from five to 10 kilos and I need someone who can provide me with this quality, the good quality. Are you that man, Pepe? Can you do that? And you know, there's like dead silence in the room. And uh, he goes, all right, Willie, look under the bed. And so I look under the bed and there's a suitcase in there and I pull it out and he goes, go ahead, open. And I open it up and there's eight perfect kilos in there. And when that happened, the guys like lower their guns and everybody's taking a deep breath. And um, that began a relationship with Pepe and with his partner, a fellow named Paco. And I went and met Paco, who was a family man in his early 30s, Cuban guy, wife and kids there. And he had about 40 kilos in his office that I had to choose from. And I was under their protection and that took me off the street. Willie and Larry had found their suppliers in Paco and Pepe. And in the process, Willie became a made man under the protection of the Cuban cartel. And now his trips to South Florida would be a little more enjoyable. They got me a house, so when I came down there, I would stay in the house. And, you know, it turned the danger and me coming to kind of an end of the whole street running thing. The cocaine was always 100%. And that's what really was responsible for our business, Larry's business, for taking off. Because now, every trip, I'm getting 97% pure cocaine. And that was very hard to find anywhere in the country at that time. And as the cocaine took off, so did Larry's personal life. He thrived in dental school and prepared to open his own dental practice right after graduation. He even proposed to his longtime girlfriend. That normal family life in the Philly suburbs with the steady upper middle class job was within reach. It was there for the taking. But making six figures every month is a hard habit to quit. So originally when I start trying to make money, my whole goal was to pay for this 10000 a year in dental school, maybe another couple thousand in tools you got to buy, and, you know, rent and whatnot. So I'm thinking 50000 would be enough. When you have 50000 in your pocket and all of a sudden, you know, you take a liking to BMWs or whatnot, yeah, is 50000 really my goal? Maybe it's easier to double that or go to a quarter million. Then you start worrying about inflation. Next, if I put away a million dollars, what's it going to be worth 10 years? Maybe 100000 So let's move that up to a million. As you get in around a million, hey, I'm going to get out of this pretty soon. Maybe I better put a little bit more aside. Oops, we just had a bust. Between the lawyers, the 10 pounds loss, we just lost a quarter million. So we got to get back to that point again of at least a million. And if we're going to move that up, maybe we got to have $2 million to have a safety valve in case something like this happens. So unfortunately, that goal was always a moving target. He always wanted money to make more money. He never could get enough money that he felt secure. Obviously, Larry was not like the other dental school students. He drove a nice car. He knew all about the stock market. He was always giving advice to not only the other dental students, but also the professors about what to invest in. So he clearly had an income that nobody knew where it came from. And eventually it started to leak that he was dealing drugs. 
So Penn basically looked the other way while this drug ring was going on right under their nose. So Larry's business continued to grow unencumbered. He was creating an empire, flooding the entire eastern seaboard with thousands of kilos of coke. He and his cohorts had transitioned from the 70s to the 80s, hippie to yuppie. In fact, considering Larry's role in bringing cocaine to the Northeast, he probably helped invent the concept of a yuppie. But there was an issue with Larry's business, an issue that would trigger a number of problems, an issue you don't hear most business owners complaining about. Larry was making too much money. Next, on Wolves Among Us. Anyone who's making millions of dollars illegally eventually runs into the problem of what to do with all that money. I go to open the door, here comes two guns down in the door. Now the plot thickens. Why would he do something like that? Something was wrong. The guy comes over and goes to tap me with a gun and it goes off. Thank you for listening to Wolves Among Us, a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Story created by Cadence 13, along with Matthew Hazara Davis and Steve Seidel. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge of Cadence 13. Co-written by Matthew Hazara Davis, Lloyd Lockridge, and Steve Seidel. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Narrated by me, Steve Seidel. Produced by Ian Mont and Margot Gray. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations, and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schupp, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.